Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. Eighteenth of the month of Dicius, the king has a fever, slept in the bathing room. Nineteenth of the month of Dicius, played dice with Medius in his bedchamber, fever through the night. Twentieth of Dicius, he sacrifices to the gods, listens to Nearchus tell the story of his voyage on the Indian Ocean. Twenty-fourth Dicius, fever worsens. The king orders his officers to move their quarters into the palace of Babylon to be close. 25th Dicius, he is carried across the Tigris River to the North Palace with its gardens for fresher air. Fever does not abate. 26th Dicius, he is no longer able to speak, though he acknowledges his companions with a glance. The king is brought back to the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, the main palace. The soldiers demand to see him. They throw open the doors. They file past his bed in silence. He moves his head to acknowledge them with difficulty. 27th Dicius, the fever is worse still. The oracle of Serapis advises against moving the king into the temple. 28th Dicius, the king is dead. Eumenes, at this point, didn't really know what he was supposed to write down. The Persian royal diary that he was now keeping recorded the daily doings of the great king, the king of kings. But there was no king now. Alexander the Great was dead at age 32, and he had no successor. And now Eumenes didn't know what to do. He had built his career and his life around loyalty and service to this man, around the impossible dream that Alexander had brought crashing into the real world. But maybe it wasn't right to say that Alexander had no successors. Eumenes could see now that assembled here at Babylon were actually very many successors, perhaps a dozen or more, each with their own agenda. And this may very soon turn into a huge game of King of the Mountain. I'm Alex Petkus, and you are listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the biographies of famous Greeks and Romans in order to sharpen ourselves to face the present. We take the ancient philosopher Plutarch as our guide. This is part one of three of the life of Eumenes of Cardia. Now, if you were a Florentine growing up in Renaissance Italy in the 1480s, you could be forgiven for thinking that you lived pretty much in the center of the world. But in the next decade, 
Columbus would come back to Spain and tell of the discovery of a new continent in the West. And there was Martin Luther posting his 95 theses in Wittenberg a few years later in 1517, starting the Protestant Reformation. The world was just a totally different place within one generation. Either of those transitions are comparable to the times the subject of this biography lived through. When Eumenes of Cardia was a young man, he could not possibly have known that the Mediterranean world he lived in was at the cusp of the most dramatic political and cultural shift in its recorded history up to that point, and that he would be at the very center of the administrative and military machine that brought that change about. It was Alexander the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire, Alexander the Macedonian. Eumenes was his Greek secretary. Was he worthy of his position? Was he ambitious enough to desire it? Or was he just lucky? Well, just when Eumenes was on top of this new world order that he had helped forge, Alexander died, and things suddenly looked like they were starting to unravel. When this happened, Eumenes was one of the people who was determined to keep it all together. He was one of the only people who could. And in the aftermath of Alexander's unexpected death, Eumenes adroitly converted his position and influence into political power in order to do just that. And he impressed his contemporaries and posterity with his diplomacy, with his cleverness. But above all, this secretary, this bureaucrat, shocked the world and went on to be famous among later generations for what he achieved on the battlefield. Eumenes was underestimated by the Macedonian political elite to their peril. Eumenes was born around 362 BC into a world dominated by old, independent Greek city-states, constantly warring among themselves, vying for supremacy. They had allies and proxies and spheres of influence here and there, but their status quo had remained relatively unchanged for more than 150 years. The map of Greece was, and remained, a patchwork quilt of different polities. Athens was a relatively large chunk of it to the south. Sparta is another big one, even further south. Corinth was a buffer between the two, and Thebes was a big player as well, a little further north. Eumenes was born in Cardia, though, which was really on the fringe of the Greek world at that time, in the northeast. A backwater, far from Athens and Sparta and Thebes. It's in Turkey now, in the small northwest corner of that country that lies in Europe. It's on the Gallipoli Peninsula, the site of a famous World War I campaign. Back then, Cardia was close to the Persian territories. The straits that connect the Black Sea with the Mediterranean separate the peninsula Cardia is on from Asia by less than a mile at some points. On the Asian side were territories of the great king of Persia, who ruled those regions from thousands of miles away from his palaces in the Near East at places like Babylon and Susa. And even though it was close to other Greek port cities, Cardia was in a region called Thrace, and most of the hinterland was not Greek, but Thracian. They were barbarians. So Cardia was a fringe kind of place in the Greek world. Cardia means heart in Greek. One day, when Eumenes was a teenager, he met the man who was going to change his life. A young monarch from a nearby kingdom was coming to visit the sleepy little town of Cardia. His name was Philip. 
There was a lot of excitement in the town and also a lot of tension. Philip was controversial. In Eumenes' part of Greece, Philip was even a polarizing figure. He was the king of Macedonia. Philip was in Cardia on one of his frequent diplomatic circuits through the area. He would go around the various cities in the area, shaking hands, being entertained, giving gifts. Philip was a renowned gift giver. Many people wanted to be his friend. But Cardia had historically been Athens's territory. Even though Athens was far away, Cardia was a port town and Athens had a very powerful navy. And not too long ago, it had controlled all of the coastal cities in the area. But this local king, Philip, had started expanding his influence in the area recently to the great detriment of Athens. He was capturing many of Athens's former allies and territories here in the northeast, some by force, some with his favorite weapon, a donkey laden with gold. And there were still people in Cardia who thought that the city's long-term interests lay with loyalty to Athens. Those people kept pretty quiet whenever Philip was around, you can imagine. But Eumenes' father was one of the leading citizens in Cardia, and he was in the pro-Philip party at Cardia, and he had big plans for this visit. He was planning to show Philip a really good time. You see, Philip's kingdom, Macedonia, sometimes called Macedon, it had never really been a big player in Greek politics. They had only minor roles in the Great Wars, the Persian Wars, the Peloponnesian Wars. These had mainly been led by Athens and Sparta, with Corinth and Thebes fighting as major allies. Macedonia was in the far north of Greece, closer to Cardia, and the Macedonians had powerful warlike barbarian neighbors like the Illyrians and the Thracians. They were always invading and interfering. Moreover, the Macedonians had a very old-fashioned and backwards form of government, monarchy, or as those Greeks from city-states, dominated by collective governments, like to say, tyranny. What's the difference between a monarchy and a tyranny? From the Greek perspective, it was little more than the name. And this Macedonian monarchy had not been very stable historically. On top of their barbarian difficulties, the kings married many wives. Their children fought amongst themselves. There were assassinations, intrigues, a big bloody soap opera. Philip was the third brother. His eldest brother had been assassinated by a usurper, and the second brother had been killed in a huge battle with the Illyrians. It was a mess. The Athenians thought, chances are this Philip guy probably isn't going to last that long. Now, Cardia had a democratic government too, like Athens, but their citizens were a lot closer to the action of Macedonia, and people like Eumenes' father could see Philip was pretty unique. In a few years, this Macedonia had become a very different kingdom than the version Athens or Thebes or Persia was used to dealing with. Philip had managed to subdue his barbarian neighbors, wrestle back control of many ancestral territories, and also unite the fractious Macedonian tribes. He had taken firm control of the great rich resources of the area, gold and silver mines, grand timber forests, wide fertile valleys and pasture lands. He taught his farmers and blacksmiths how to use a vicious two-handed spear in a novel battle formation. It was 18 feet long. He modeled it after the famous Theban phalanx engineered by Epaminondas and Pelopidas, but he made the spear longer. He had studied it, this phalanx formation, when he was a hostage in Thebes as a teenager. So the Macedonia of Philip II was dangerous, and to people in the area, he was looking like a very good cause to place your bets with. 
So Eumenes' father wanted to impress Philip. He wanted to show him what Cardia had to offer, a man of his ambitions. And Philip clearly had big ambitions as a king. People weren't sure what he was up to, what his end game was, but to all appearances, he was just getting started. So Eumenes' father invited Philip to come and watch the city's athletic contests, which just happened to coincide with this visit. And he was especially intent to show Philip the wrestling matches and the Pancration contest. His son was competing in them. Eumenes was very good at both. Wrestling was wrestling, but the Pancration was the Greek's equivalent of MMA, no-holds-barred submission fighting. Except for gouging the other guy's eyes out, anything goes. Very exciting contest, and Eumenes had been reminded many times who was going to be watching this match. My son, this is our shot. Do you understand? And so as Philip is sitting there in the bleachers in a seat of honor next to Eumenes' father, watching the show with his one remaining eye, he had lost an eye to an arrow shot by that time, Philip is watching Eumenes dominate opponent after opponent, showing not just bravery but also cleverness, and Eumenes' father, as I imagine, nonchalantly leans over and says, did I mention the boy can write too? And Philip had already grasped what was going on, of course. Now, he could use someone with writing skills, and it's worth pointing out that Macedonia in those days was not a place with widespread reverence for book learning as such. Now, in these Greek city-states like Cardia and especially Athens, these democracies, oligarchies, republics, they had things like public accounts, archives, citizen lists, assembly debates, institutions where motions and laws were proposed and minutes were recorded. There were numerous inscriptions recording decrees and laws, and they were often being written in public places to be consulted. So there was a lot of use for scribes and literacy there. And so, Eumenes Sr. had had his son educated in these liberal arts of the Greek city-states. On the one hand, that meant athletics, horsemanship, traditional song and dancing, fighting, but it also included a literary education. And that literary education would have meant focusing heavily on the Homeric epics, the Odyssey, and especially the Iliad, with their great stories of the Trojan War and the exploits of the Greek heroes. Eumenes would have memorized large sections of these texts. And in fact, as he was growing up, he could look right across those straits towards what was left of Troy, the city Odysseus sacked, the place where Achilles fought Hector. It was right there, what was left of it at least, on the Asian side of the Dardanelles, or the Hellespont, as they called those straits back then. Eumenes dreamed of being like those grand heroes as a boy. They were so different from these democratic Greeks he was used to being around. Homeric heroes didn't take plebiscites on policies. Nobody quoted laws at them. They didn't assign offices by random lottery. The best men ruled, period, ruled. Now, the Macedonians spoke a dialect of Greek, and they were culturally very close, worshipped most of the same gods. But unlike those Greeks, as we've mentioned, the Macedonians were pretty firm believers in monarchy. There was a hereditary monarchy, the Argaeid clan, Philip's clan. It had been around for a long time. And the various regions were run by a warrior nobility, the lords of the realm, who were officially called the companions of the king, 
the Hittiroi. They had their ancestral lands and power bases all over Macedonia, but these companions were around the king a lot too. They were his drinking buddies, his generals, his governors. Sometimes they were his distant cousins and in-laws. But they were very independent-minded, tribal even. The companions have also been compared to mafiosi crime bosses, and you could go pretty far with that. For one thing, the king always had to find ways of reminding them that he was the toughest, smartest, and meanest of the bunch, because the Argaeid clan hadn't always been the royal family, and it could change, theoretically. So, mafiosi crime bosses, maybe, but in their own eyes, at least, the Macedonian warrior nobility, these companions, they were more like the mythic heroes of yore in Homer's Iliad. They fought for honor, for glory. They fought at the front lines in battles. They fought each other when they got drunk and quarreled. They were towering figures with noble names, names that often appeared in the Homeric epic poems and other myths. Neoptolemus, Pyrrhus, Cleopatra, Eurydice, Meleager, and of course, Alexander, which was the name of the Prince of Troy who stole Helen away from Sparta, otherwise known as Paris. The nobles liked to hear the great poems and stories at their grand feasts, but they had people to read or sing these things for them. At least, that's how they preferred to have it arranged. Not that they were all illiterate, but they had dependents and subordinates who would keep records and handle correspondence and read poems and things like that. These Macedonian nobles, these warrior lords, these great barons and their own fiefs, any of them, any companion of the king, would have taken it as a supreme insult if his son were offered the position of secretary instead of some more soldiering position as a cavalry officer or a commander of some guard or something like that. So Philip needed other smart people who could write, people who understood how these democratic Greeks thought and talked, how their institutions worked. And he understood the power of treaties and letters and careful records, especially when dealing with these fractious Greek city-states. And so, sitting in that little arena in Cardia, as the boys are slogging it out, as I imagine it, Philip turns to Eumenes Sr. and says, My friend, I believe I have a job for your son. And that was how it happened, something like that. All the training and the gymnasium, the wrestling, boxing, lifting weights, and all that study of the classics, that reading and writing, it had all finally turned into Eumenes' ticket out of this little Thracian backwater. Eumenes joined Philip's entourage. Eumenes was jumping onto a moving train. Philip seemed like he was everywhere, marching from this side of the kingdom to the other, on various military or diplomatic missions, constantly receiving and sending letters. Letters to and from other monarchs, to and from Philip's many friends in so many Greek cities. Some would call them spies. And there were often letters between Philip and entire citizen assemblies, like the citizenry of Athens. Eumenes would hear Philip analyze the letters, watch him think, and carefully respond, Philip would dictate, Eumenes would write. Athenian politicians like the orator Demosthenes would read Philip's letters aloud in front of the assembly. Philip's words, Eumenes's handwriting. Demosthenes was the leader of the anti-Philip party in Athens. Eumenes knew what Demosthenes and other Greeks of places like Athens and Sparta would say about him, what they did say about him. Tyrant's lackey, Philip's little pencil pusher, slave, 
Whatever. Let them talk. Eumenes was interning with one of the great diplomatic geniuses of history. He was learning how Philip thought about war, civic politics, how he played factions off each other, usually at a distance, how Philip kept the loyalty of his own proud, noble companions, and how he dealt with his family. That was another sphere where Eumenes quickly perceived Philip could use his help. For one thing, Philip could use another set of eyes on his eldest son, a spirited boy, five or six years younger than Eumenes, son of Philip's fourth wife. His name was Alexander. Philip was grooming Alexander as his successor. He would take him around on diplomatic missions and military campaigns. Eumenes made sure he was around him a lot. He won his way into Alexander's confidence. They connected over their love of horses. They were both exceptional horsemen. Alexander and Philip liked having smart people around. There was an old philosopher named Aristotle that was around a lot, tutoring Alexander and a few of the noble sons. Not one of those showman debaters, those cheap quibblers you find drawing crowds in the town square, a real political analyst. This man really got how these Greek city-states worked, all their strengths and all their weaknesses. He was from the north, near Macedonia, but he had spent a lot of time in Athens, and he told the boys all about it. What was it like to be there in those circles Eumenes was in? Philip's court at Pella in Macedonia must have seemed like the most exciting place you could possibly be in Greece. Eumenes was also piecing together what Philip's real ambition was. The Athenian politicians kept trying to sound the alarm. He means to ruin us, to take us over. Eumenes always helped Philip downplay this, so much catastrophizing. But Demosthenes was right. Philip was planning to rule them all. Athens, Corinth, Thebes, Delphi, Sparta. Philip's grand impossible ambition to change the world was to conquer the Greeks' age-old foe, the dark menace that was ever grinning at them from the eastern horizon, the Persian Empire. Once long ago, the Greeks had all united and driven off the expansionist Persian king Xerxes, the Spartans at Thermopylae, the Athenians at Salamis, all the cities at Plataea. Before that, there were the Athenians at Marathon against Xerxes' father, Darius. It was the stuff of legend, 150 years ago, before this long, interminable age of the Greek cities quarreling amongst themselves. But the Persian king was still there, interfering, meddling, playing them off one another. He ruled over many great, rich Greek cities in Asia Minor. Ephesus, Colophon, Miletus, Pergamon. Philip saw that to defeat the Persians, the Greeks would have to unite again. They would have to join up with the Macedonians. But for them to unite, something would really have to radically disrupt the status quo. From where Eumenes sat, it looked like in practice this probably meant that the Macedonians would simply have to conquer the Greeks first before leading them against the Persians. Philip was okay with that too, if that's how the Greeks preferred it. And Eumenes could see that Philip was a grand, forceful uniter. He was like Agamemnon from the Homeric poems, who united the Greeks against those Asian Trojans. No, he was greater than Agamemnon. He was smarter. Great men had tried before also to unite the Greeks on the mainland and liberate, so to speak, those Asian Greeks, the Ionians as they called them. All efforts had failed. But Philip just might pull it off. 
if he could keep his house in order. Philip and Alexander quarreled often. Sometimes it got frightening. After one dispute, Philip got so mad at his teenage son that he banished all of Alexander's friends, sent them into exile. Bad influences. All of them, that is, except Eumenes. That one has a good head on his shoulders, Philip thought. Eumenes worked hard on his relationships. He learned that he was very good at getting people to trust him. He studied these Macedonians very carefully. He learned to speak their language. And he had made himself both someone that Alexander genuinely wanted around as a companion and someone that Philip trusted and needed around as a secretary and as a moderating influence on his stormy son. So through the combination of his competence and demonstrated goodwill, Eumenes won his way into the hearts and minds of most of the royal family and gradually some of the leading Macedonian nobles. Eumenes soon became not just secretary, but chief secretary, arch-secretary, in Greek, archigrammatos. He managed even to win the trust of Alexander's mother, Olympias. Olympias, Philip's fourth wife, was a foreign queen. She was from a tribe of Greeks called the Molossians, who lived in the dense mountains further west, a region called Epirus. Many people found Olympias challenging to get along with. Philip did too. Olympias was a grand woman, a terrifying woman if she wanted to be. She was reputed to be some sort of enchantress involved in the midnight worship of Dionysus, god of wild natural forces. She kept snakes. You can imagine getting on her good side was a particular point of pride for Eumenes. Olympias had all the ambition of Philip, all of his cunning and ruthlessness. And by the time Eumenes met her, she was growing very tired of this polygamy nonsense. Philip constantly needed to be reminded which of his wives was the most important, which of his children was the most important. So Philip quarreled often with this Molossian queen, and their final rupture came when Philip arranged for himself yet another diplomatic marriage, this time with a local Macedonian princess. Olympias decided she was done with all this, and she went off back to Epirus to be with her kin, where she'd be shown some proper respect. But by then, Eumenes had grown close to her too, and he managed to stay her friend through this rift. He kept contact with her through letters, and of course he remained in favor and full employ with Philip at the same time. Olympias later on called Eumenes the most faithful of her friends. Through all of this, coming so close to so many key figures at court, with their huge egos and volatile relations, Eumenes was putting himself through a master class of discretion and subtle manners. Part of his role seemed to be that of professional confidant. But sometimes, being a faithful friend, truly keeping someone's trust, means picking sides and quarrels you'd prefer to stay neutral in. It was probably through his loyalty to Olympias that he ended up getting on the wrong side of one of Philip's chief generals, really his right-hand man, an old noble companion called Antipater. Antipater and Olympias were often at odds. Antipater didn't think this Molossian queen really had Macedonia's best interests in mind, and he wasn't afraid to let her and Philip know it. And Antipater didn't like Eumenes. Maybe it was because he could just smell ambition on him. This Greek put on a good show, but Antipater was convinced this kid didn't know his place. 
That was unfortunate, because Antipater was among the most powerful and influential of all the Macedonians, besides Philip. This would come back to present a problem one day, but you can't please everyone. And so Eumenes was at Philip's side as the king achieved all his ambitions in Greece, taking effective control of the oracle at Delphi, subduing the Athenians and the Thebans in a great battle at Chironea, forming the League of Corinth. The League of Corinth was Philip's vehicle for uniting the Greek city-states in a military alliance with Macedonia. In other words, taking control of them. But right when Philip was at the height of his power, when he was finally ready to begin the grand plan, an assault on Persia, he had already sent forces ahead to establish a bridgehead into Asia. In 336 BC, Philip II of Macedon was murdered in broad daylight in front of hundreds of dignitaries at a religious ceremony at the holiest city of Macedon, Aigai, modern Virginia. The murderer himself was a disgruntled bodyguard of Philip, and on the face of it the causes seemed to have to do with him avenging a personal insult. He tried to get away, but a couple of Alexander's companions chased him down and killed him before he could. This was of course shocking and caused huge tumult. Conspiracy theories abounded. We'll talk more about it in the life of Alexander. But there was a very long list of people who wanted Philip dead most especially the leaders of many Greek city-states who were now his subjects. Some even suspected Alexander's mother Olympias had orchestrated the assassination, and now the best witness was dead. Eumenes was around 26 years old. He was one of the people best placed to know whether or not Olympias had anything to do with her husband's death. But if he had any incriminating evidence, and it's unlikely, well, if he did, he took it with him to his grave. No plot was ever proven. And so in 336, shocked or not, Eumenes seamlessly transitioned to being Alexander's head secretary. His new master was 20. Alexander inherited not just a swath of royal territories and a cadre of skilled bureaucrats to administer them, but also all of Philip's detailed military plans for the great Asian expedition, his diplomatic intelligence, his fanatically loyal army. Alexander inherited the greatest Greek war machine anybody had ever assembled. All of the formerly independent major cities contributed, except Sparta which had managed to preserve its independence, to the great resentment of the Macedonians. And the army was led by the elite, battle-hardened Macedonian infantry phalanxes with their trademark long spear, the Sarissa spear, as well as the now world-famous Macedonian cavalry. Alexander wasted no time in executing those plans of his father. He had to put down an uprising in Greece first, but in less than two years after Philip's death, after Alexander had consolidated his rule in Greece and Macedonia, he crossed the Hellespont, the straits between Greece and Asia, with his army into Persian territory in 334. They had to march right past Cardia on the way. You wonder if he let Eumenes stop off and greet people. It might well be his last time seeing his homeland. 
but if so, he didn't have much time because Alexander wanted to strike the Persians like a thunderbolt. In late spring of 323, Eumenes marched into Babylon triumphantly with Alexander and the rest of the army. It was 11 years since they crossed the Hellespont, 11 years since they had seen Greece or Macedonia, though Eumenes, as royal secretary, continued to get correspondence from there. He would get updates on affairs in Cardia from his relatives. An old family enemy had seized control of the town. Hecateus was his name. He became the new tyrant of Cardia, and he was making life miserable for his rivals. Eumenes' Cardian relations pleaded with him in their letters, Can't you use your influence and do something about this? Well, with King Alexander more at leisure now, done with his great campaign, Eumenes finally was going to get the opportunity. He was in his late thirties. As he retraced his steps and looked back over the accomplishments of the past decade, the great conquest of the Persian Empire, it looked like the gods were still favoring them. Alexander had sometimes seemed invincible. Eumenes was there at the battle at the Granicus River back in 334. That was Alexander's first victory against Persian generals. It was fought near Troy right after the coalition crossed the Hellespont into Asia. Eumenes oversaw the sending of a certain souvenir back to Greece. On Alexander's orders, he arranged for 300 suits of captured Persian armor to be sent to Athens, to be hung up in the Parthenon, the great temple on the Acropolis. He made sure they got the honorary inscription just right. Alexander wanted it to read, Alexander and all the Greeks, except for the Spartans, took these from the barbarians who dwell in Asia. And Eumenes was there at the Battle of Issus on the north Syrian coast, when Alexander defeated King Darius III himself and his massive Persian army. Darius got away, but the Macedonians captured his royal camp, his queen, his daughters, and his mother. Alexander wanted these royal ladies, who just days ago had been the most powerful women in the world, he wanted them to continue to enjoy the same dignity they always had, with their fine Persian lodgings, and their wardrobe, and their servants, and their diet. And Eumenes was the guy who had to figure out how to keep paying for all that stuff. Eumenes was there at the founding of Alexandria in Egypt, on the eastern edge of the Nile Delta, after they took that land too from the Persians. He reviewed the city plans, the great orderly grid. It was going to be a new kind of city for a new age. He accompanied Alexander on the expedition deep into the Libyan desert, to the Siwa Oasis, to see the oracle of the god Amun-Ra, the supreme god, the sun god. The Greeks thought this god was Zeus. They called him Zeus Amun there. And that's where Alexander received the message from the god that his father was not actually Philip, but indeed, Zeus himself. This confirmed a story that Olympias was fond of telling, that she had a strange dream on the night before their wedding night, so she said, that her womb was struck by a thunderbolt, which she took to be a sign of Zeus visiting her in the night. So, Alexander the son of a god, eh? Well, Eumenes certainly learned a lot about the power of religion being around Alexander. And Alexander's successes did, after all, make him seem divine. 
After Egypt, they captured Babylon, and then Eumenes was there at the final battle of Gagamela in northern Iraq in 331, when the Greco-Macedonian coalition finally defeated Darius's armies decisively, even though they were once again massively outnumbered. King Darius fled. There were further mop-up operations as the Macedonians subdued desperate holdout forces deep in the mountains of Iran. This was Eumenes' first experience of this strange, harsh land that he would come to know so well later in such different circumstances when he was the one commanding the army. But that was much later and he couldn't have imagined it then, nor now in Babylon as he reflected on Alexander's great triumph. Darius, soon after these mop-up operations, was assassinated, and Eumenes' friend, Alexander, Philip's boy, assumed the title then of King of Kings, the Great King, King of Persia. Eumenes remembered people were thinking, it was over, right? Any normal human would have been satisfied. But no, Alexander wanted to keep conquering. And so Eumenes followed his king on another grand expedition beyond the eastern borders of the Persian Empire, past the Indus River into the Punjab region. An expedition to India, just as long and daring as the first expedition into Persia. Longer, actually. More dangerous. And again, the details of that campaign are best saved for the life of Alexander. But it was on that expedition that Eumenes transformed. Of all his accomplishments, relationship building, statecraft, subterfuge, administrative feats, Eumenes was most proud of the fact that Alexander had seen in him the potential to become more than just an administrator, a bureaucrat. It was on the Indian expedition that Alexander had put Eumenes, a Greek from Little Cardia, in charge of an elite division of cavalry. After the capture of the city of Sangala, that's Sialkot in modern Pakistan, Alexander sent Eumenes and his 300 horsemen in this elite cavalry division around to the smaller cities in the area to accept their surrender, or demand it if necessary. It wasn't a major role, and it wasn't that he hadn't fought in battles before, but to command, well, this was important, and it was enough to alarm some of Alexander's old guard Macedonians. Eumenes downplayed it, played the humble servant, but he felt it was a promise of more important roles to come. He knew it. There was no way to win respect from these Macedonian barons in Alexander's entourage unless you could lead men, unless you could back up your word with force. Now, Alexander generally liked and trusted Eumenes, and he desperately needed Eumenes to keep the growing administrative chaos at bay. So, Eumenes wasn't afraid of putting the occasional strain on their relationship if there was something to be gained by it. Once he got promoted, Eumenes carefully picked a few quarrels with Alexander's closest friend. He was a Macedonian named Hephaestion. But Hephaestion was a well-chosen opponent. Several of the other Macedonian nobles didn't have much respect for Alexander's favorite. They were so close, it seemed unbefitting of a king. It was irritating sometimes. But you didn't want to let Alexander get any idea that you felt that way, and you certainly didn't want to mess with Hephaestion in front of him, because Alexander was usually going to take his side in an argument. So the nobles generally kept quiet. Some of them knew that they were replaceable. 
Eumenes saw their helplessness. He decided to stand up to Hephaestion a few times. This kind of got him crosswise with Alexander, but it earned Eumenes something he really needed, some respect from the top Macedonians. One of them in particular, Craterus. Craterus was one of the old guard, one of Philip's soldiers, salt of the earth. Eumenes had seen how Craterus clashed with Hephaestion too. It got frightening at times. Craterus was very popular with the soldiers, so that gave him some leverage. And Eumenes and Craterus bonded over their dislike of Hephaestion, and Craterus was a good friend to have. Hephaestion died young, though, on their last leg of the return from India. Not in battle, but from a fever. Eumenes jumped on that opportunity. He praised the dead Hephaestion to the stars in front of Alexander. You know, he and Hephaestion had their differences sometimes, but gosh, what a guy, what a loss. And he urged Alexander to throw a lavish funeral, something befitting the dignity of his dear friend. Did not the hero Achilles do this for his fallen friend Patroclus in Homer's Iliad? Glorious funeral games. Eumenes insisted, and Alexander agreed. That's a splendid idea. Only fitting. Well, that helped patch things up nicely with Alexander. And here they were, back in Babylon at last. Alexander had picked Babylon as his future royal seat. A central location in the middle of modern-day Iraq. It was ancient, fabled, wealthy, beautiful. It had great religious significance. And everyone had been looking forward to some rest. This Indian campaign had been very hard on the king. He had sustained several bodily wounds. It was hard on everyone, though. Seven long years marching, and they had lost many good men. And seven long years after they had already conquered the Persian Empire... Eumenes was looking forward to getting to know his new Persian wife. Alexander had just recently arranged for a great mass marriage ceremony. He wanted his Greek and Macedonian companions to take noble Persian wives, a great melding of the two civilizations. Eumenes had been on the list of honored grooms. It was all ludicrous, wonderful, unprecedented like everything about this whole Macedonian project he had been running with ever since he signed on to Philip's team that fateful day in sleepy Cardia. But this recent mass marriage gave Eumenes hope that things would settle down, that the king would now set about the hard work of truly uniting this huge, diverse mass of territories and peoples that he suddenly controlled, and he only controlled them tenuously, Alexander had matched his father in military exploits. I mean, he had far outdone him, but not yet in diplomacy, in statecraft, in administration. And these were the skills that were going to be necessary to secure his legacy. And Eumenes had real serious experience in this from his time with Philip. He was in a prime position to help. He could become not just Alexander's arch-secretary, but his chancellor, perhaps, his vizier. They could even put some of those lessons from Aristotle to the test, maybe. But what did Aristotle know about monarchy, about an empire of this scale, really? What did any of them know? It was thrilling. Eumenes was 38, Alexander was 32. But then, shortly after arriving in Babylon, around the beginning of June... Alexander fell ill with a fever. 
It was probably kicked off by an especially heavy bout of partying and drinking. Everything always had to be larger than life. But Alexander got sick, and over the course of a few days, Alexander's sickness worsened. It didn't help that he could never stay still. He kept having meetings with his generals about things like vacancies and commands to be filled. He kept making his daily royal sacrifices. He was even talking about planning another expedition. And the fever worsened. After taking over the Persian Empire, Eumenes, as royal secretary, kept close records of Alexander's activities in the Persian royal diary, the book of the daily doings of the great king of Persia. Alexander had taken over this practice from the conquered. And Eumenes watched in increasing horror, observing minutely, carefully noting it all down, as the king declined, and after ten days, succumbed to the illness. He died without designating a successor, on the 28th of the Macedonian month of Dicius, around our June 11th, at age 32. The citizens of Babylon put on black clothes to signify their mourning. Emissaries began arriving from across the former Persian realm, expressing condolences, offering praises of the dead king. It was what they were supposed to do, of course, but much of this was genuine. Alexander was wildly popular. He had the promise of being a great and glorious ruler. He hadn't had enough time to disappoint his new subjects. Eumenes loved Alexander too. The loss was immeasurable. But the noble companions on the scene didn't have much leisure to mourn their king or reflect on his legacy. The soldiers were starting to get restless. Eumenes knew that the diplomats from the various realms of the kingdom, behind their grieving expressions, they were scrutinizing the situation, looking for opportunities for signs of weakness. Eumenes was urging haste to settle the succession. The stakes were enormous. Will this huge territory, spanning from the Upper Nile to the Caspian Sea, from the Danube to the foot of the Himalayas, encompassing Athens and Jerusalem, Asia Minor, Syria and Armenia, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Iran, Kurdistan, Afghanistan, will it all hold together? Will rival local kings rise up and take back their lands? Will the freedom-loving Greeks revolt and cause a domino effect? Who will rule? How many? And how? And so, in the great cobalt-blue palace of Babylon, the palace once built by King Nebuchadnezzar, the bodyguards of Alexander met in conclave to decide the fate of the kingdom, and perhaps their own fate too. To be a bodyguard of Alexander was an official title for his closest companions and officers. Eumenes wasn't a bodyguard. He was at the discussion, though. As always, he was at the very center of the most important thing happening at the time. The bodyguards and the other noble Macedonian leaders probably were assuming that this Greek, without his patron, the king, to call on him when he raised his hand, that Eumenes would just fade into the background as the big men sorted things out, that he would wane and wither, get lost in the shuffle, 
and eventually become a non-entity. But if that's what they were thinking, they were sorely mistaken. However, looking around him, Eumenes sees all the conflicting interests here at play, and he, he makes a very calculated opening move. He knows that they want to underestimate him. So he says to the other men gathered around the table, Look, uh, I'm just a Greek, not a Macedonian. I claim no noble lineage. You all are Alexander's trusted officers, bodyguards, warriors of great repute. I'm just going to take the minutes for the meeting. You guys go ahead. So he absents himself from the debates, plays the neutral party, and he watches it all unfold. And this moment of clarity, of tranquility of mind, ended up being one of the most impactful things he had done up to that point. Now, opinions among the bodyguards were mostly in favor of finding a blood relative of Alexander to succeed him, and on this premise there were two main options, neither of them very appealing. First, there was his half-brother named Aridaeus, son of Philip by one of his lesser wives. Aridaeus was widely regarded as unfit for rule. He was possibly mentally handicapped. At the very best, Aridaeus could only ever be a puppet for more powerful men controlling him. The other option was Alexander had a Bactrian wife named Roxana, and she was six months pregnant. If Roxana had a boy, that boy would be a legitimate full heir of Alexander, but he would be half Persian. Bactrian was more or less Persian in the eyes of the Macedonians. And some of the Macedonians objected to being ruled by someone of the race that they had just conquered. Either option required the commanders to agree upon an official regent or protector, someone to look after the throne until either the king was of age or presumably indefinitely in the case of Aridaeus, perhaps until Aridaeus bore an heir himself. The deliberations were even more difficult because two people who would have been key players in this decision weren't even there. One of these was Alexander's most trusted friend, Craterus, a friend of Eumenes as well. They had bonded, remember, over their opposition to Hephaestion. Craterus, the hard-fighting, hard-cursing, salt-of-the-earth, old-guard Macedonian. He was very popular, the most popular, among the soldiers. Since the king's death, in fact, the soldiers had been openly putting his name forward as a successor to Alexander, or at least for some kind of role as regent or protector. But Craterus was in Cilicia, which is in southern Turkey. This is several weeks' journey away. The other key absentee was Philip's former right-hand man. Alexander had left him behind in Macedonia to look after the kingdom and the throne in his absence. It was Eumenes' old enemy, Antipater. They hadn't seen him in a decade. He had to be getting on in years now. He was in his mid-70s. Macedonia was several months' journey away from Babylon. But Eumenes knew from the letters he received from him that Antipater was still the same crafty old schemer. But there was no time to wait for those men. However, because of their clout, any decision made would have to be approved by them eventually or else they had ways of overturning it. But the most senior man on the ground in Babylon was a baron named Perdiccas, head of the cavalry, Alexander's second-in-command. 
Perdiccas had grown up with Alexander. He was around Eumenes's age. Perdiccas was from a, an old Macedonian minor royal family. Perdiccas was cool-headed, cold-eyed, an imposing man, frightening even. He was there on the day Philip was assassinated. Perdiccas was one of the guys who chased down Philip's assassin on foot and killed him with a spear. As the talks went on, various proposals were put forth, various schemes for regency. Perdiccas emerged, though, as the leading candidate for regent. But before the bodyguards can settle the matter for good, a large group of soldiers bursts into the palace. They're outraged at all this secrecy, and they're demanding that everything be debated out in the open. And this massively increases the pressure. Eumenes, though, is sitting on the sidelines, just the note-taker. But suddenly the bodyguards are facing a mob of hot-headed infantry soldiers, world-famous killers, who are now shouting up or shouting down every suggestion put forth. The situation deteriorates and a riot ensues. The bodyguards and nobles and leaders who had begun the meeting all slip out through the back door of the palace and they regroup outside the city with the cavalry. The infantry though, that is the mob, was now in control of Babylon and now they're all demanding that Aridaeus be proclaimed king, the half-brother, eternal puppet, and some of their rabble leaders, some junior officers, they are volunteering to be his protector. Eumenes, however, is still in Babylon. He's been the neutral guy the whole time, remember? You know, just a servant of the throne, taking the minutes of the meeting. And for a while, it looked like things might have to be decided by battle. The infantry in the city versus the bodyguards and the cavalry outside the city. But in this crucial moment... Eumenes, still in the city, offers himself as a neutral counselor to the leaders of the infantry mob in the city. He only wants to do what's best for the kingdom. And the infantry is effectively under siege in Babylon, and so cooler heads prevail. And Eumenes becomes the trusted go-between for the two camps, between the men in the city and the cavalry led by Perdiccas surrounding it. And Eumenes is eventually able to broker an agreement and end the standoff. And so it was because of Eumenes that the bodyguards were back in control. Really, that Perdiccas was back in control, because Perdiccas, remember, he was the top choice for regent before the whole riot had started, and he was the commander of the cavalry. Well, he had become the leader of the faction outside the city. And so... An agreement is arrived at, the sides reconcile, Perdiccas reestablishes order and peace. And shortly thereafter, Perdiccas leads these chief instigators of the riot, these junior officers. He leads them into a trap and he has them executed. Eumenes wasn't surprised. In fact, after the dust settled, he made it clear to everyone that he was acting in Perdiccas's interests all along. So the final settlement made at Babylon, was Perdiccas is going to be the regent and guardian of the kingdom, not the king, but ruling on the king's behalf. Aridaeus is formally proclaimed king, and if a male son was born to Roxana, that boy would be the joint king and heir of the kingdom. 
And a couple of months later, that's exactly what happened. The child is born a boy, and he's hailed as Alexander IV, because Alexander the Great was the third. So Perdiccas, a noble Macedonian, once Alexander's second-in-command, becomes the protector, as he was called, the protector of the kings. And Perdiccas owed Eumenes a favor. So after this hard-won compromise, Perdiccas has the job of assigning governors to the many provinces. The Macedonians actually decide to call them satraps, which was the old Persian word for governor. For example, Ptolemy, one of the bodyguards, gets Egypt as his satrapy, and other satraps were assigned to other satrapies. And Eumenes had proven his loyalty to the throne and to Perdiccas by settling the dangerous standoff that could have sparked a war. And in return for his service, Perdiccas makes Eumenes satrap of an impressive chunk of land, basically the northeast third of Asia Minor, regions called Paphlagonia and Pontus along the Black Sea coast, and also Cappadocia in the interior. So after the great partition of Babylon, as they call that settlement, there was some hope that the kingdom was on a path to recovering from the shock of losing Alexander. And Eumenes was going to be a powerful man in the new regime. Once he established himself in his province, Eumenes could become a serious and relatively independent player. And he could do something about that tyrant lording it over Cardia. There was just one problem. In order for Eumenes to take control of his territory, he had to drive out a rebel Iranian satrap, an old, loyal friend of the defeated Persian king. Ariarathes was his name. Ariarathes had personally fought beside Darius III at the Battle of Gagamela. He had a full army still at his command. He was battle-hardened, deeply entrenched. If the Macedonians wanted his satrapy, Cappadocia, it was going to have to be over his dead body. Perdiccas had all kinds of other concerns to deal with now as regent of this massive empire. He sent Eumenes off to Cappadocia with a small force and some money to recruit more troops. Eumenes, you're a smart guy. You can figure this out. And so it was swim or sink. Thanks for listening to The Cost of Glory. If you like this, please subscribe, leave a review. It really helps us out. Also, if you want to use these ancient biographies to become sharper for the present, sign up for our email list at ancientlifecoach.com. Stay tuned for next week when Eumenes faces off against some of the most famous generals of antiquity. But have we not already seen some of his unique traits as a leader, including First and foremost, his ability to be an effective follower of the right cause, a loyal servant to the decision makers in the situation he found himself in. Not that he couldn't make decisions for himself. What happens next will show that he could indeed. But he was able to slow his mind down and comprehend the situation as a whole and find where the real potential for action was, the real leverage points. He became a document man in a more illiterate kingdom. He befriended a stormy queen. He challenged Alexander's best friend, stayed neutral in the settlement of Babylon. He always appeared grateful for good minor roles and performed them meticulously with excellence. 
This was because he saw in them the clear potential for much greater roles. Until next week, when we bring you part two of Eumenes, this is Alex Petkus. Petkus.